Let us turn now to our first reading, Romans 8 and verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now in this epistle to the Roman Christians, Paul sets out very clearly the plan of salvation. And in setting the plan of salvation, he makes it abundantly clear in this epistle that the whole of mankind are guilty before God. Now you get plenty of people and they will talk at length about uh, the sorrow sin has caused and sin has caused every kind of sorrow. Uh, but a lot of these people will never make mention of the guilt of sin. And until guilt is dealt with, the effects of sin will just continue indefinitely. And that is, of course, what we have in Christ's great atonement, that he took the guilt away. So all mankind, therefore, are guilty before God without any exception. And the only exception we have is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> in taking our nature into union with himself that he, of course, did not contract in his mother's womb the sin that every one of us did contract. So Paul sets this out very clearly in this epistle. And if God had chosen not to save anyone, God would have been unjust. God would have been giving to, giving to mankind what mankind deserved. He wouldn't have been unjust in any way whatsoever. But in his sovereignty, he chose some to eternal life. And that some amounts to an innumerable multitude of people which no man can number. And the rest of mankind, God left to their own will. People give you the impression that the non-elect, that they are made to reject the gospel, that they are made to do this and made to do They are not. They do precisely what they want to do. They want to reject the gospel, they do it of their own free will. They want to stay away from church, they do it of their own free will. The kind of life they live, they do it after their own free will. And remember, at the end of the day on the judgment day, they judge for their guilt and for their sins. Not because they were not amongst the other parties. So we see the sovereignty of God in all these matters. So God then, to bring man and God together, God provided a saviour. And to us it's a great mystery. And we see Christ as the wisdom and the power of God, that God was able to provide there a saviour with two natures. And the one nature could suffer, die, be under the power of death, rise again and be exalted to the right hand of God. And the other nature couldn't die, couldn't suffer, couldn't be exalted. And that they were both united in the one person, in a divine person. And this is what gave, gave infinite worth to the sufferings and the death of Christ, thus cancelling out the terrible death that was owed to God, 
And so God, for Christ's sake, is reconciled to sinners. So today then I want to look at three points. And first of all, I want to look at the extraordinary leading of the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, we'll have to consider prophets, the apostles, and three unusual cases. Then in our second point, we shall consider the ordinary leading of the Holy Spirit, which includes prophets, apostles, and all ordinary believers. And then in the third place, we shall consider the warnings given to God's people and to the unconverted in their relation to the Holy Spirit. Let us now return then to our first point, the extraordinary uh, working of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have, of course, uh, here the whole emphasis on the third person of the Trinity. It's not often you hear an entire sermon spent on the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can hear reference to the Holy Spirit in every sermon that is being preached, but seldom you hear sermons of the Holy Spirit. We should give more time to the third person of the Trinity. A Trinitarian person is someone who is in possession of the whole of the divine essence. And that applies to each of the three persons of the Trinity. And that happens simultaneously. It is not divided by the Trinity. Each one is in possession of the whole of the divine essence. And that simultaneously. And that is a great mystery. And it is a great mystery. There are lots of mysteries in the Bible. We can't just turn a blind eye to them. We've got to try and understand and explain things as best we can. But having done that, we have to acknowledge that there are mysteries there that we cannot fully understand or fully explain. But these things were all necessary things. So the Holy Spirit then is one a member of the Trinity. We, we speak of the Father begetting, the Son being begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son. And that is, of course, from eternity. And in eternity there are no uh, uh, before or after. It is another great mystery to us. So here then we have the Holy Spirit working in an extraordinary manner in the lives of the prophets. Now, if I were to ask you today to define for me a prophet, I'm sure most people would say, well, prophets predicted future things. That's, that's true, friends. They did predict many things that were in the future. But the main work of the prophet was to communicate to the people the mind of God and many things. So they brought messages from God to the people. When you read to the prophecy of Jeremiah, you see there for yourself how much Jeremiah suffered in being faithful to God, in communicating to the people the message that God had given him. He was just very much alone, rejected, hated, cast into the dungeon. They tried to take his life. They didn't want to hear the word of God. And that's just like the day we are living in, friends. There is just no time whatsoever for a 
the whole counsel of God in many gatherings of people up and down the land, gathering in the name of the Lord, and yet they have no ear for the whole counsel of God. There's just a certain type of ministers to their liking. That's all they want to hear. And they shut their ears to everything. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun. This is what happened in the days of Jeremiah. Nevertheless, it was a great blessing to Israel to have a prophet of God. When you move there to the days of uh, King Saul, Samuel had passed away. There's no prophet to consult. So he went to the Urim and the Thummim, and there was silence from heaven. And then eventually went to the Witch of Ender. It's a pathetic uh, situation there. And then we all know what the final outcome was. So to have a prophet of God was a great blessing and a great privilege. So that was the function then of these prophets, to communicate to the people the messages that God gave them. Yes, they also predicted certain things that would happen in the future. They warned the people. There were times when they encouraged the people and brought comforting messages to the people. And some of these prophets wrote. Some didn't. Elisha and Elisha, they didn't write anything. But other prophets wrote. But what about First Chronicles 29 and 29? We have reference there to the writings of Nathan uh, the prophet and Gad the seer. Does it mean that their writings were not inspired because they're not part of the, of the scriptures? Well, that is not, friends, how leading expositors would view that. They are of the view that they are the men who completed 1 Samuel and wrote the whole of 2 Samuel. You see, Samuel died. He never completed 1 Samuel. And he never wrote one word of 2 Samuel. So why then are these books named after him? Well, it doesn't follow because uh, uh, the person's name is associated with a book that that person wrote that book. Esther never wrote the book named after her. Ruth never wrote the book named after her. And in all probability, the reason why Second Samuel <coughs> is still called uh, uh, so is because of continuity that if it had been given some other name, that continuity would have been broken. So you have then, first of all, the extraordinary leading of God with the prophets. But we also see the extraordinary leading of God with the apostles. Please remember, friends, that Israel had been accustomed to uh, the old administration of the covenant of grace. It was very complicated. Very complex indeed. All the sacrifices, the high priests, the priests, the altars, primarily the tabernacle, latterly the temple, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. It was a very complex system. So that when Christ died and the veil was rent into, that brought that system to an end, the old administration of Christ. And then we have the new administration, so simple. The word, sacrament, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. But my point is, friends, to, for the people to move from a, a system they had been familiar with for thousands of years to something as simple as what we have now. 
you can appreciate that God had to set apart men with extraordinary powers and gifts to establish this new system, the new administration of the covenant of grace. And so God set aside the apostles. You have all in 14 apostles. You've got the first 12, including uh, Judas Iscariot, and then Judas apostatized. So you have him replaced by Matthias. That makes, comes up to four, 13. Then you have the Apostle Paul later on. That's 14. But normally we speak of the 13 apostles. But yet, when you're working through the four accounts by the evangelists, Judas is still there right up until the point he apostatized. But nor we speak then of the 13 apostles, the 11 including Messiah and also the Apostle Paul. And these men were given great gifts. They were given power to raise the dead, to heal the sick. They preached with power and many were brought into the kingdom. Many were richly blessed and the Lord was with them, the Lord was accompanying the work they were doing. So in all these matters we see the extraordinary leading of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to three unusual cases. And these three unusual cases are, first of all, we have Balaam. And you'll find the account given of Balaam in Numbers, uh, maybe from 22 to, to chapter 22 to 24. And Balaam was a false prophet, and he was hired by Balak to curse Israel. And God used the mouth of Balaam, and Balaam spoke inspired words. This is what Balaam had to say. If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot depart from what the Lord commands. And what the Lord commanded that he speak. And what did he say? There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. These words were as inspired as anything written by Jeremiah or Isaiah or the Apostle John. And there were other sayings as well by the mouth of uh, Balaam that were also equally as inspired. Remember God took the mouth of the ass to rebuke Balaam. And why couldn't he also put on the lips of Balaam these inspired words? So uh, this is extraordinary, friends, to see the least. The second person was Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was a high priest, a wicked, treacherous, devious character. But you see, in the province of God, if a holy and a, a God-fearing high priest had been in office at that time, uh, things wouldn't have worked out as they did. So in the province of God, he allowed this devious character to be there as head of the Sanhedrin. And he and the Sanhedrin were against Christ, and they fired up the people uh, to cry for his death. And these are the, the kind of people he had to contend with. But the mouth of Caiaphas was also used by God. 
to deliver an inspired message. And what was that inspired message? He said it's expedient that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. These were prophetic words fulfilled eventually when Christ died to the letter and being fulfilled to this day, friends. One die and many being saved. And the third unusual case is, of course, Pilate. Now, Pilate is rather an enigma. Some expositors, they are pretty harsh. They, they are harsh. They cannot just find anything that they can see in his favor. You get other expositors, and they are just slightly kinder. Two things that can be said with absolute certainty, and the first is this, that Pilate was fully convinced that Christ was innocent. He did everything in his power to secure Christ's release. And the second thing is that Pilate was a weakling. But you see, if you had had a strong procurator in Israel at that time, it wouldn't work out either. In the foreordination of God, it had to be somebody who was a weakling. And when you study the life of Pilate, when Christ was brought to him, it was a balancing act that he could never win. On the one hand, he wanted his conscience kept clear. He didn't want a hand in the death of Christ. He knew that he was innocent, that they were wanting him crucified out of envy. And then, on the other hand, he had to placate the Jews. Pilate had no love for the Jews. He hated them. But he had to keep in with them. He had to maintain peace and law and order. So this was the balancing act. And he tried everything in his power to secure the release of Christ. And when the Sanhedrin were seeing that things were as if they were slipping away from them, then of course they brought up the fact that Christ was claiming to be king. And the moment Pilate heard that, he was afraid. Because they said that whoever would take Christ's side couldn't be a friend of Caesar. And if that happened, he'd be guilty of treason. He would have been put to death. And then he yielded to them at that point. But he tried one, one other thing to secure the release of Christ. He had Christ scourged. Now this is contrary to Roman law. Remember what Paul said when he was beaten. He said to the captain, Roman captain, is it lawful that a Roman citizen should be bitten. And, and uh, the captain was surprised to hear that Paul was a Roman. We don't know how Paul was a Roman, but this is what he said himself. So here then was Pilate having declared that Christ was innocent and he gives Christ over to be bitten, travesty of justice. But the reason why he did that was he was hopeful that after Christ had been scourged, that that would satisfy the Jews and that they wouldn't want Christ crucified. But that failed as well. It had to fail. Christ came into this world to give his life a ransom for men. Now if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So in the end, of course, Christ was crucified. Well, when people were crucified, 
they, each one was given a white, a white tablet, and on the tablet was written the crime that we committed. And it's at this point we see inspiration in Cardenas' Pilate. What did he write according to the Gospel according to John? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, they came back to him and says, write not the king of the Jews. But Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Pilate knew they had no more leverage over him. The ball said, well, it was in his court. And what Pilate wrote, though his hand wrote it, it was guided by the Holy Spirit. And there you see inspiration in that title that was put on the cross and was read, or was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, for all the multitudes that were there to see the injustice of what they did to Christ, and yet on the other hand, this was the only way that Christ could die. There was nothing in Christ that death could claim. And unless Christ had been willing to lay down his life, he couldn't have died. And in being willing to lay down his life, he also needed the instrument that would take his life from him. So you see the role of these unjust people and brutal people and so on. And in the end, what God had foreordained was fulfilled. So let's leave in that first point there, extraordinary leading. Next we have the ordinary leading. As I said earlier, the ordinary leading includes prophets, apostles, not these three exceptional cases, prophets, apostles, and the people of God in every age. And the reason is you have to start off at one point that they must all have in common. And what did Christ say to Nicodemus? Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the new birth applies to everybody that enters into the kingdom of God. Prophets, apostles, even the infant that dies in infancy. You cannot, impossible, to enter the kingdom of God any other way. Now, when we look at the confession of faith, they don't deal with the subject of regeneration as such. They put it under the, the heading, effect your calling. But the dogmaticians that followed on in the following century, they were more precise in dealing with this subject. So they dealt with regeneration or the new birth. Some maintain it starts in the intellect, others say it starts in the will. So we have to go back to Genesis, to uh, Adam. God created Adam. Adam had an inclination towards holiness. He wasn't inclined towards sin. And yet when the choice was given, he became inclined towards sin. Don't ask me to explain that mystery. How a person inclined to holiness could become inclined to sin. It's a mystery. I can't explain that to you. But that is, friends, what happened. So then the will went into bondage. Doesn't mean because the will is in bondage that people aren't at liberty to do what they please. They are. Otherwise, you'd cease being a rational human being accountable to God. What the bondage pertains to is the inability to choose what is spiritually good. That A person left him, he'll never do that. And for that to be done, the inclination has to be changed. And that's what Christ spoke of when he said to Nicodemus, 
except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that is the inclination towards sin. That which is born of the spirit, that's the inclination towards God. Uh, that which is born of the spirit is of the spirit. Marvel has said unto you, ye must be born again. So then we find that the leading of the spirit begins there at the new birth. Now the new birth has done no violation to the uh, will of the creature. The creature is made willing, willingly follow the Lord, willingly accept the things of God. But you see, when Adam sinned, there wasn't a trace of original righteousness left in him. It was gone. But when a person is born again and justified by faith, the remnants of sin are still there. And they're there all his days until death. And at death, that soul is made perfectly holy. So what, is, what has the person got to do between the time he's brought us in knowledge of Christ and the day of death? He's got to be mortifying the deeds of the body. Now you have people in this world and they live morally upright lives and they're very strict and they discipline themselves. But it is possible to do that, friends, without being led by the Holy Spirit. Paul himself was like that prior to his conversion. He tells us himself that he was blameless in every way. And so, friends, to die into sin, it can only be done through the Holy Spirit. And you have that in verse 13. If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And in mortifying the deeds of the body, through the Spirit, it is done for the right reason. First of all, because of what sin is. What sin has done to the glory of God. The hatred the person has towards sin. The desire he has to be separate company from it. To overcome it. And to live a life that is pleasing to God. We see the leading of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Now, we can sometimes uh, refer to prayer. And maybe our prayers don't constitute prayers at all. Because... They are not done in the right spirit. Maybe uh, we're carnal in our approach to things or we ask selfishly and there are many of the reasons why it doesn't constitute prayer. But we're told, friends, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And in that prayer, you have the leading of the spirit. That confession is real confession. Repentance is true repentance. The, the desire for humility is a true desire for humility. The desire for God is a true desire for godliness. And there will be fervency accompanying that prayer. And the person will persevere as well in prayer. You've got the leading of the Spirit in all these matters. And we get lessons to learn, friends, from the widow and the unjust judge of the Syrophoenician woman. Just think of how disheartening it was to that widow committing injustice. Turned away, turned away, turned away. And she was determined to succeed. And she did in the end. The lesson there is if we prevail, we will succeed. And the side of Phoenician woman, she, she must have felt insulted initially. Insulted and discouraged that didn't put her off. And in the end, what do you get? Christ commending her faith. 
and she succeeded. So we see the leading of the Spirit then in prayer. We have the leading of the Spirit in our reading of the Scriptures, when the Scriptures are blessed to us. You can read the Scriptures, and mind can be all over the place. You can read a chapter and close the Bible, what did I learn from that? And how often that happens. But when we concentrate on what we're reading, when we take it to heart, when it has an effect on us, when it humbles us, or it encourages us, or it rebukes us, you've got the leading of the Spirit there. The Word is being blessed to us. You have the leading of the Spirit in the sacrament, in preparing ourselves for it, in humbling ourselves on the throne of grace, in coming to God as a spirit of contrition, in coming with an earnest desire for the Word to be blessed. Well, you have the leading of the Spirit in all these matters. You have the leading of the Spirit, friends, in meditation. Meditation is a wonderful exercise. For the mind to be exercised on the things that are above. We should spend more time in meditation. And the Spirit leads us there, leads us down, leads us to green pastures and to still waters, and it brings comfort to the soul. The leading of the Spirit in meditation. The leading of the Spirit in reflection. We have to reflect on things that are past. That's a good exercise, friends. It's a very good exercise to reflect on the way God has led you. Reflect on maybe difficult things that have been in your lot and God delivered you from them all. Reflect the way God has led you. The, 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 the things that are in your life to this day and you see the hand, the goodness of God in all these matters. It's a good exercise. It fills your heart with joy when you're maybe cast down and uh, it brings a spirit of gratitude into your soul. You see, the kindness of our loving Father that he has taken you by the hand all these years to the very spot where you are now. He never forsook you. He blessed you. He upheld you in all these matters. You, you see, once we are born of the Spirit, we're under the directive influences of the Holy Spirit in everything that we do pertaining, pertaining to the things of God. And the time is moving on. I've got to bring it to an end, bring that point to an end. There's a lot more that could have been said. And finally, the warnings that are given. Now, I took two other readings today. And in Ephesians 4.30, we are warned there against the, the, against the uh, quenching the Spirit. Now, when we use the word quench, we mean by it to, to extinguish something. You want to quench the fire. You, you want to extinguish the fire. Now, we mustn't think that the Holy Spirit can ever be extinguished in the life of a believer. When the Holy Spirit has taken up his place, and I believe he's there forever. Remember that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And don't forget this either. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. What do we do with our soul? What do we do with our body? Do we remind ourselves every day it is not ours to use as we please? It is God's property. It is sacred. It has to be used in the service of God. 
Remember the word says, ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. So the Holy Spirit dwells within each of God's people. And the Holy Spirit will never abandon the people of God. But he can be quenched in this sense that his influences can be lessened. I take you to Psalm 51. And Paul, you know yourselves the history of that psalm. All written in connection with the terrible sins that David had committed. And there David is crying, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And it is a firm belief of leading expositors that David was never restored to that level of joy he had prior to committing these sins. That was something that he forfeited. And we have to be careful there as well, friends. There are so many ways we can quench it. We can quench the spirit by indulging too much in this world. And see, people think that things are not sinful, that it's a license just to indulge. Anything that occupies the mind, fills the mind, means there's no room there for the Lord. That particular subject is occupying the mind. It is occupying your time. And we're warned about time. We have to redeem the time. Time is precious. To redeem it. And that has a quenching effect. Spending more time maybe reading other things rather than the Bible has a quenching effect. We're thankful to God for all the good books that are available. Nevertheless, nothing is a substitute for the Word of God. Nothing, friends. We must give time to the Word of God. Study it intelligently, prayerfully, and meaningfully. And when we don't, we're quenching the Holy Spirit. We're quench, quenching the Holy Spirit by not spending enough time in prayer. Let me ask you today, is prayer a burden to you? If prayer is a burden to you, you're backslidden from God. We should have pleasure going aside to a throne of grace with God. We should, friends, Come there into God's presence first thing in the morning before you speak to any human being. Give the beginning of that day to God. Spend time there. The more often we frequently turn of grace, the more we enjoy being at the throne of grace. If we have to drag ourselves there, if it's a burden to us, then you've got to examine yourself very seriously indeed. That you are not quenching the Holy Spirit. And the time is moving on. So, Anything at all, friends, that is harmful to our spiritual well-being, rest assured that that in some degree has a quenching effect on the Holy Spirit. And finally, and that is in Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 and verse 19, we are told there, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. And uh, what that really means is, as I said, uh, our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit should be welcomed there. Now, how would you feel if you visited a home and you didn't feel welcome? We don't want to get out of there, out of it as soon as possible. Well, that's the effect it has on me anyway. If I felt that you weren't wanted, weren't welcome in that place, at long just to get out of it. Just think now of the Holy Spirit. 
If we are offending the Holy Spirit, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. This is what Calvin had to say. Endeavor that the Holy Spirit may dwell cheerfully with you, and as a pleasant and a joyful dwelling, and give no occasion for grief. No occasion for grief. And you see, we, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we don't welcome his presence with us, when we don't respect his presence with us, when we don't avoid the things that have a quenching effect on the Holy Spirit. All these things have a grieving effect on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sensitive and we must respect it. And finally, a warning to the unconverted. And what is that? Well, my spirit shall not always strive with man, fighting against the strivings of the spirit. There are some people in their congregations, and maybe going back a few years ago, when they heard the word of God being preached, it affected them. It brought the tears to their eyes. They went home troubled. Maybe they went aside and prayed and uh, sought the Lord to have mercy on them. But the trouble is, that didn't last. And so the conviction started wearing away. And maybe nowadays they will sit listening to the word of God. Doesn't affect them at all. Doesn't bring the tears to their eyes. It doesn't move them in any way. And they go home just the same as they were coming to the house of God. Well, there's a solemn warning there, friends. We don't know what the unpardonable sin is. We don't know. But the best of expositors for them to believe that it is something to do with, of course, the, the strivings of the Spirit and resisting them and, and, uh, and doing the very opposite. And what will happen eventually is that these experiences will fade away at the end of them. And once that sin is committed, it can never be pardoned, friends. John the Apostle tells us also of the sin that is into death. And he just goes as far as I say not that you should pray for him. I've always found that verse a problem. And the problem I have found with that verse is how do we know who has committed the sin into death? We don't. And so the safe way forward there is to keep praying, friends, for people even if they have committed a sin, and we don't know that, but they still pray for people, however much they have sinned, that God's grace would still arrest them and turn them to himself. So I warn any unconverted person here today, don't, friends, tempt the Spirit of God. If you have strivings, follow up these strivings. Pray about it. Take yourself to the Lord, plead for mercy, but don't fight against the strivings of the Spirit. So I'll leave these few thoughts with you on the leading of the Spirit, and may God bless God to us. Let us pray. <clears throat> Eternal and most holy God, we give thee praise and thanks for being together here this day. Bless and sanctify to us uh, thy holy word. May we take it to heart. May we seriously consider what the word requires of us. Humble, may we humble ourselves before thee. 
take us to our homes in safety and back here in safety again this evening and blot out sin for Christ's sake. Amen. Let us now sing to God's praise in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 at <coughs> verse 11, 11 to 15. Cast me not from thy sight, nor take thy Holy Spirit away. Restore me thy salvation's joy, with thy free spirit me stay. Then will I teach thy ways unto those that transgressors be, those that sinners are shall then be turned unto thee. May, God, may these few verses then, Psalm 51 from verse 11, Cast me not from thy sight, nor take thy Holy Spirit away. <coughs> Intimation, the evening service at 6.30, the service next service at usual time, 11 a.m. and 6.30 p.m., and the preacher expected is the Reverend William McLeod. The prayer meeting on Thursday at the usual time is 7.30, taken by Mr. Ian Martin. And uh, Mrs. Ferrier is now in the care of Bally Ferry Care Home. So it's good for you to know that. These are all the intimations.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.